This is from the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatian church, starting in verse 1. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We didn't give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that we should remember the poor, the very thing that I was eager to do. It reminds us that life as Christians in this world means we are going to experience hostility. We will experience hostility from outside of us because the world doesn't understand us. We're not of the world. We're part of a whole other dimension, a spiritual dimension, the kingdom of God. And so because of that, the world doesn't understand us and it doesn't accept us. And it also means we'll have hostility from within the church because there'll always be people who are trying to undermine our freedom in Christ. And there'll be division and conflict and various attacks from within the church. So it means we have to experience hostility and conflict. So how should we respond to all that? Now, in our culture, we don't experience some of the things that Christians in other places, like the Sudan and other places where they experience direct violence. We experience very little of that here in this country. But we experience attack. We experience hostility. For us, it's much more an intolerance of our Christianity really invading the public sphere. So our Christianity is tolerated as long as we keep it private. 
as long as we keep it to ourselves, as long as it doesn't affect our work very much, as long as we don't bring it into uh, telling other people that they need to be saved, you know, as long as we leave them alone, etc., as long as it's a private thing, we push it out to the margins of our lives, then it's okay. Otherwise, we experience great rejection and hostility. And unfortunately, the history of the church isn't that great in how we've handled hostility. Too often what the church has done is gotten defensive. And we've holed up in our monasteries or our big church complexes. And we hide out because it feels safer and we don't, we just feel better being around Christians all the time. And so we build our fortress mentalities and yet what happens when we do that is we lose our influence in the world. Remember what Jesus said, we're to be salt and light. Salt that penetrates a dish and goes through every part and changes the flavor of every part. We're to be light that drives out the darkness. You see, we're to be in the world, but not of it. So if we're not to hide out and, and protect ourselves and just wait for Jesus to return, how should we live in a hostile world? What should be the things we should focus on? What should we live out so that we can be the people of influence in this world that Jesus wants us to be, that he created us to be as the people of God who are to be salt and light in the world? Well, last week you got some tools for evaluating your teachers, me, Rod, others. Well, today I'm going to give you some tools for evaluating yourself. How are you doing personally? And how are we doing as the people of God in living out the qualities that God wants us to live out as the people of God in a hostile, broken, hurting world? A short answer to that as to what we ought to be is we just ought to be the church. We just need to be the people of God. But as we go through this passage that Cynthia just read, I I have four observations I want to bring out about how the church is living out its uh, calling from God before Paul and be in this uh, Jerusalem church as they're dealing with Galatia and all that. Four observations that I think are very helpful for us to understand our calling by God as we live in this world he's placed us in. So let's look at who we are to be as the people of God in a hostile world. Four observations. First one is this. We are to be stewards of truth. Stewards of the truth. Now Paul begins this way. He says, After an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So Paul describes this visit to Jerusalem. He says, I went up after an interval of 14 years. He doesn't tell us exactly which visit this is or uh, it's 
you have to do some thinking about how this coordinates with the visits he made in the book of Acts. And there's differences of opinion, but it seems like the best possibility is that this visit after 14 years, it's probably 14 years after he was converted on the road to Damascus, and it was a visit that's recounted by Luke in Acts chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, where he says this, At this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. Notice that Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem because of a revelation. Well, Acts 11 says there was a revelation. God said there's going to be a famine. So this new church that Paul was part of, this Gentile church, the first one ever in Antioch, that's uh, recounted for us in chapter 11, says, in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. The church in Jerusalem was really poor. The Gentile church in Antioch had more money. So they took up an offering and they said, we're going to go help our Jewish Christian brethren. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. So they brought this offering. But Galatians, the passage we just read, says that part of the reason Paul went up is because he wanted to present his gospel to the apostles in Jerusalem. For fear that, he says, I had been running in vain. Now we learned last week that Paul had been taught the gospel by God directly, by Jesus, in the wilderness. And yet he's still willing to come to the apostles and present what he's learned and what he's been teaching and say, is this true? Is, does it agree with what you understand the gospel to be and the freedom we have in Christ? So he was willing to submit to the leaders there for the sake of the truth. And notice the result. Verse 3 and verse 6. Verse 3, not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised Remember, the false teachers were saying, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to live out the Jewish rules if you're really going to be a good Christian. Yeah, believe in Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. But Paul says, you know what? When I came and presented it to the apostles, they didn't compel even this Gentile with me, Titus, to be circumcised. And in verse 6, from those who are of high reputation, okay, these are the uh, apostles, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. What's he saying? He's saying that, you know, I presented it for fear that maybe what I was presenting was in error somehow. But they added absolutely nothing to my gospel. They confirmed my gospel. They agreed with what I'd been teaching, that it really was the truth. And I think that's a wonderful picture and and must have been a great encouragement for Paul that his gospel that he'd been teaching was the true gospel, was confirmed. But then notice verse 4 and 5. It was because of the false brethren secretly brought in. And he goes on to talk about these false brethren that came to spy out their freedom. But he says we didn't yield to them at all. There were false teachers that showed up. And they're saying, look, You need Jesus plus. If you really want to please God, it depends a lot on what you do. And that's not the gospel, folks. 
It's Jesus alone, depending on Jesus alone. And so Paul says these false teachers came in and the church and Paul, as they were dealing with these, rejected them. They didn't submit to them for a second. Now, I want to step back and just think about what this means about how the church was functioning here. Here come these guys that want to express control and take control, these false teachers. I like what Eugene Peterson says about it. He has a word for us about this kind of mentality. They're people who do not want us to be free. They don't want us to be free before God, accepted just as we are by His grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively in the world. They want to control us. They want to use us for their own purposes. They themselves refuse to live arduously and openly in faith, but huddle together with a few others and try to get a sense of approval in insisting they all look alike, talk alike, and act alike, thus validating one another's worth. That's what false teachers are like. You know, they, they want to huddle together to, to get a sense of approval that, okay, you've got to be like us. You've got to think like we do. You've got to act like we do. That's what a good Christian does. But what does the gospel do? It sets us free to be who we really are in Christ in all our diversity. Christians are meant to look really different. <laughs> and so these false teachers say, no, no, you've got to be in this narrow little box and do these certain things. And that's what makes a good Christian. But what I love is the observation here of how the church is functioning well. Paul comes in and they affirm his teaching. False teachers come in and they reject them and their teaching. That's what it means to be a steward of the truth. That's what we are all called to be, stewards of the truth. We've received the truth of the gospel, Jesus alone, and the truth that's in here about how we're to live in Christ. And the church is meant, all of us are called to be people who confirm the truth and who reject false teaching. We're to be stewards. What is a steward? A steward is one who's merely put in charge of somebody else's stuff. And you and I have all been put in charge of somebody else's stuff. Jesus' stuff. God's stuff. And in particular, of the truth. We're not talking just about material possessions, though that's God's stuff too, but let's just talk about the truth. We're stewards of the truth, and that means that we're to teach it, proclaim it, guard it, protect it. That's what we're called to do as the people of God. It's been passed on to us, and we're to use it wisely because it's his. And we're to protect it, make sure it's true, but we're also to proclaim it in the world. So we're to be stewards of the truth. Second observation I see in this passage about how the church is functioning well is I see that the church is to be encouragers of ministry. Encouragers of ministry. Verse 7, rather than adding anything to my gospel, on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is, non-Jewish people, Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jewish people, for he who effectually worked in Peter in his apostleship and the circum to the circumcised effectually worked for me also 
to the Gentiles and recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas or Peter and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Paul says, not only did they not correct my teaching, but what these apostles did, what the church did in Jerusalem, they actually confirmed my giftedness. They said, wow, we see God's at work in you. Look at the grace of God, His hand on your life. That's amazing, Paul. And you know what? We just want to confirm that, encourage you to fulfill your ministry and to do what God's gifted you and called you to do. What they did is they observed Paul's life. They saw God at work in his life. And they saw that God had given him a task and God was empowering him and had grace on him. So they confirmed his ministry and sent him out to do ministry. Now I thought about this and I thought, you know, how do we tend to function as people today too often? Someone comes and they maybe do ministry a little different than we do. They maybe wouldn't do it quite as well as we would, we think. And so rather than affirm their ministry and confirm it and send them out and give them our blessing, we think, well, you know, if you're going to minister here, here's what you need to do. You've got to do it this way. But what's exciting to me is that they don't criticize the way Paul did ministry. They don't even talk about that, even though there had been conflict and difficulty. They didn't try to control where he went or how he did his ministry, but instead they said, wow, God's hand on you is on you. Go for it. You've got our blessing. See, I think so often we're critical of one another. We're critical of ministry. We're critical of how we do things and etc. But this is a beautiful picture, I think, of what we are to be to one another in the body of Christ. You and I for one another. We're to be people that look for how God is working in one another's lives and to point that out and say, wow, look what God's doing in your life and encourage him and say, you know what? Have you ever tried this? Because I think you're really gifted in this area. Why don't you try this ministry? Or why don't you consider this? Or, you know what? God's moving, giving you a heart for that. Go for it. Yeah, but I feel inadequate. So what? We're all inadequate. Go for it. God's gifted you. His hand is on your life. And we can confirm one another and encourage one another. It's so easy to focus on, well, you know, maybe when they get more mature, then God can use them or whatever. And I think the encouragement is, no, set people free to use their gifts, to begin ministering. And you know what? Jesus is the one who will keep them straight as they go. Let's encourage one another. Let's bless one another. Let's set each other free. Let's be encouragers of ministry. That's really how we understand our whole purpose as church leaders here, elders and staff. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastor teachers, for the equipping of the saints, that's all of you, all of us, for the work of ministry, the work of service or ministry to the building up of the body of Christ. You see, we are here to encourage you, but you are also here to encourage one another to say, wow, how is God working in your life? Follow him, serve him, 
Maybe it's in this church, but maybe it's just in the community. Maybe God's called you to have an impact somewhere and an influence out in the world, and we want to encourage that. So the church, when it's working well, we are encouraging one another. We're not holding another, one another back from serving Him and following Him. We're, we're seeking to be a blessing and helping each other overcome those fears and the discouragements and the failings and all that so easily overwhelm us. When I first started out in ministry, I had the opportunity to do some teaching. And, and uh, honestly, as I look back, it was terrible. And I remember thinking very clearly, if I have anything to say about this, I'll never teach again. I'm going to spare myself and everybody else from my teaching. But I had a couple of men in my life that saw something in me that I didn't see, some potential, and I don't even know what it was, but they kept encouraging me to teach, and they kept giving me opportunity, and I was scared to death. But you know what? That encouragement got me to keep doing it. I would have never believed I would have the opportunity to teach the Scriptures like I do now. And it was only because of those men that encouraged me when I wanted to quit. That's a powerful ministry that we can have in one another's lives. Think right now about somebody that needs your encouragement that maybe is pulling back and how you might encourage them to step out and begin finding a place to use their gifts and focus not on whether they're doing it all right or whether they're all together. No, but focus on the fact that Jesus is in them and if He's at work in their lives, then He'll provide exactly what they need as they begin to step out and grow and learn. That's the church being the church, encouraging one another, building one another up, confirming God's giftedness in one another. The third observation I make about this passage and how the church is functioning with Paul is that they're reconcilers of relationships. I just read verse 9, and there's this interesting phrase. They extended to Paul, or they gave to him and Barnabas, the right hand of fellowship. The right hand of fellowship. Now let's think about this for a minute, because Paul had a problem. If you read the book of Acts, and you look at how Paul related to the church in Jerusalem... He was there as a persecutor of the church. He was there and he held the coats while Stephen was the first martyr and he was stoned. And he was arresting people in the church and taking them to prison. And he was a persecutor of the church. Then God met him. Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. His life was transformed. And he went to preach in Damascus and made a mess of it. He had to be let down through a, down on a basket outside the wall. And then he came to Jerusalem. And the apostles naturally were terrified of him. And the early church, they're going, yeah, right. This guy's showing up now and he's saying, oh, you know, I'm just kidding about all that other stuff. I want to join. How do I join the church? Do you have confirmation classes or something? And they're going, forget it, buddy. <laughs> And Barnabas took him along and said, no, really, God's changed his life. Barnabas is a great confirmer, right? I mean, he's, he's the encourager. That's his name, son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. And, no, no, God's really changed his life. 
So he began preaching. And he began arguing with the Jews. And there were riots and there was a ruckus in Jerusalem. I mean, there really was. It was crazy. And if you read Acts chapter 9, I want to read a couple of verses from that. And you'll see what Paul's relationship was like with the early church. It says he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him. And verse 28, he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. And they were attempting to put him to death. Things were getting hot. And the church was doing pretty well. I mean, many people were coming to Christ until Paul showed up. And now there's riots. You can imagine how the apostles felt. And then listen to this, the last two verses, verse 30 and 31 of uh, this section in, in Acts 9. But when the brethren learned of it, all this conflict going on, they brought Paul down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And listen to the next verse. So, okay, there's a connection there. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. And going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Paul was nothing but a troublemaker. I mean, he was zealous for Christ, but he hadn't learned to depend on Jesus. So it was all from the flesh, and he was just stirring up conflict. And the church said, you get out of here. Go up to Tarsus. Get out of Judea. And it says the church all through Judea had a time of peace. And it was growing. Okay, so that was Paul's last connection with the church in in Jerusalem, and now he shows up again, and they're checking out his gospel, and notice what they do with this troublemaker that would have been so easy to be skeptical towards. It says they extended the right hand of fellowship. Now, you need to understand what that means in that culture. We, you know, we shake hands often, but in a culture that's very violent, people carry weapons and swords all the time, to extend the right hand is that's your hand used to protect yourself. And extended is to say, I trust you completely. I welcome you completely. I have no fear. You are one with me. I'm extending the right hand of fellowship to you. We are brothers. We are sisters. We are one. For them to do that had to be an amazing step of reconciliation. Reconciliation to this troublemaker that had done nothing but mess up the church in Jerusalem up to this point. It's the highest level of welcome. Folks, this is God's people at their best. Jesus has reconciled us to God, and we're called to have a ministry of reconciliation with one another. John Perkins talks about the Good Samaritan story, and he says, Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? And he answered the question with the story of the Good Samaritan a tale of racial and ethnic reconciliation. In the story, Jesus tells us that it is the other, the outcast, the marginalized, the person with whom we don't choose to associate, and the person from whom we separate, who is our neighbor. This is the person to whom we are to be reconciled. And we do it with the hope of relieving the pain and hostility in this troubled world. The church should be the one place on earth, the one place on earth where everybody's welcome. 
doesn't matter of your racial background, it doesn't matter your gender, it doesn't matter your economic background. Anybody should be able to walk through those doors and be extended the right hand of fellowship by every one of us here. I don't care how raggedy or smelly or different they appear. The church of God is meant to be a reconciling community because Jesus has reconciled us to himself. Over in chapter 3, Paul talks about that, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, but he says this, verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have been have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is therefore neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you get what he's saying there? He says you're all sons of God, and so when we look at one another, what we ought to see is the clothing of Christ's presence. You're a believer, we're one. I don't care what your background is. I don't care your skin color. I don't care anything else. If you know Jesus, we are one. And that's what I see when I look at you. And so the church is meant to be a reconciling community where those barriers that we normally keep up of, well, they're different than me and they're different, so I don't associate with them. And, and we kind of look at askance at people. And yeah, we might be civil, but we're not going to be friends with them. All those barriers should be broken down. And we should learn to be best friends with people that are very different from us. I just finished a book this week. Recommend it to you. Same kind of different as me. Some of you have read it, I know. True story. It's about a, a man who was a, truly a modern-day slave, black man who... Grew up on a plantation, walked away, ended up in jail. He was uh, homeless for 30 years. And a man who, was, who is a um, very wealthy, an art dealer. This is just was written in 2005. I mean, it's a, it's a modern story. 2005, um, anyway, he, this art dealer, his wife drug him along to go work in a gospel mission. Fort Worth, Texas. And he met this man, and he had no idea how this man would change his life. And they literally became great friends. And the story is amazing. You just need to read it for yourself. But here's something the art dealer says. He says, For 19 months, he, talking about Denver, the black man, prayed through the night until dawn and delivered the word of God to our door like a kind of heavenly paper boy. Ron, the writer, the art dealer, was going through a rough time with his wife's illness. And here's what Ron says, the art dealer. I was embarrassed that I once thought myself superior to him, stooping to sprinkle my wealth and wisdom into his lowly life. See, he learned to reach across barriers that we would normally not cross extend the right hand of fellowship, and became best friends. And you know what? He benefited more than the black man did, more than Denver did. That's the gospel at work. We are to be a reconciling community. Finally, we're to be caregivers of the needy. Last little verse in this section. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. 
Paul had come to Jerusalem to bring gifts to the poor, but the church there said, you know what? As you go preach the gospel, the only thing we want to make sure you do is is that you continue to love people well. You're a caregiver for the needy. It's a reminder that that's what the church is to be. Those who care for those who are hurting and poor and broken. Did you know that here in America, we grew up in a culture that we don't remember this or we don't know this very well unless we know our history, but virtually all the hospitals, all the orphanages, all the ministries, to, for recovery, for broken people, all the help for the poor, basically, recovery programs for alcoholism and drugs, etc. All of that in America and England and France was started by the church. The church were the caregivers for the needy in society. Now, since, you know, we've expanded the role of government and we've had the New Deal and now Obama's newer deal we're relying more and more on the government to take care of the poor and the hurting and etc. But I want to call us as the people of God to recover our calling as caregivers of the needy. That we'll penetrate society and say, no, we, we want to care for those who are hurting. Now, I know many of you are. I, I love hearing stories of how many of you are involved in different ministries of to pregnant teens, uh, rescue mission, and um, Chrysalis House. and There's all kinds of opportunities, and many of you are involved in caring for the needy, being caregivers of the needy. And I want to just encourage that more and have all of us think about how has God called us to reach out a salt and light, to penetrate this world by caring for those who are hurting. When the government does it, they're not very good at it. Have you noticed? They're impersonal and inefficient and wasteful and corrupt. But when Jesus does it through us, lives are transformed. The church will always be under attack in this world. We'll always have hostility. But let's not hide out behind our walls of safety. Let's be the church that we're called to be, as we've observed here in the early church, as they were under a lot of persecution. But they were stepping out, and if I were to summarize it in two words, of what the church is meant to be in this world, truth and love. We are to guard the truth. He's given us the truth. We are to teach it, proclaim it, guard it, be stewards of it. But we are also to be people of love who reach out with a hand of encouragement and reconciliation and caregiving for the poor and hurting in our world. And then we will be being the church we're called to be. Truth and love. This is the call of God on the people of God so we can be part of building the kingdom of God in this world. Well, I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion together as the people of God, celebrating our oneness in Him. Thank you, Lord, for the example of the early church and who they were as the people of God and Lord, move in our hearts that we might be people who are truly salt and light, who are ministers of reconciliation, reaching out to a broken world, caring for the poor and needy, guarding the truth you've given us, but loving as well. 
Thank you for who you are in us. Live out your life through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're going to take communion together now. And I love communion. It's something that God calls us to take regularly, and I invite you to be part of it, to participate with us. If you're new here, hold the elements. We'll pass out the bread first and then the cup, and and we'll all take together. I'll lead you in taking it together as the people of God. But it's a marvelous reminder that Jesus gave up his life so that we could be reconciled to him, to the Father, and to one another. And so it's because of the cross that we can be ministers of reconciliation. He reconciled us to himself so that we could reconcile others to him and to one another as well. You see, the gospel crosses all boundaries of economics, race, status, etc. And you and I are all just forgiven children. That's what we are, clothed with Christ. And so let's be the family of God. Let's feast together, taking this feast, uh, this communion. And God may have laid something on your heart as we pass out the bread. Would you seek the Lord and just confess whatever he might lay on your heart that you need to confess to him this morning? Let's give thanks for the bread. Lord, thank you for this bread that represents your body, how you bled and died on the cross for us to carry our sins. And so as the people of God who reconciled us to you, we give thanks and we praise you and we remember what you have done. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Christ's body given for you. Thanks for the cup. Thank you, Lord, for this cup that represents your blood poured out for us, cleansing us, washing away our sin, giving us new life in you, freedom in you, your life in us to be able to enter freely into your presence because of what you have done, not because of what we have done. And so we proclaim your goodness, your greatness, and we honor and worship you today. Thank you for your blood in Jesus' name. Amen. The blood of Christ. I just want to read uh, a passage I've referred to a couple times as we close. Jesus says in Matthew 5.13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's be salt and light this week, shall we? God bless.